0: From the Cyber Hub Bunker in Studio, you're tuning in to the Cyber Hub Podcast. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. I haven't done one of these live in so long, Cassie, and I'm so glad the first time I do it in in a long time is with you. Welcome to the show. Happy Friday.
1: Thank you so much for having me, James. It's very exciting to be on your live show.
0: You know, I do these live like every morning, but I'm typically always talking to like an audience through a camera, never with someone with me in the studio. And it's been about a year or so since we've done like an actual live interview on the show, because typically we record this stuff, kind of plays out during a during a live broadcast. So for everyone watching us now on on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Twitch. Twitter, now X, Rumble, everywhere. This is a live show. We see your comments. We will answer your questions. It won't be in the comments after the fact. But for those who don't know who Cassie is, I'm really excited about this one. Let me give you a little background about who Cassie is because she's the vice president of supply chain security in the Global Cybersecurity and Product Security Office over at Schneider Electric. Those who don't know Schneider Electric, a conglomerate, when it comes to so many different technologies that they work on. Um, She's an experienced cybersecurity technology executive in IT and product development. She used to code herself and, and she's, she's, she grew up from, from the same seat. Many of you sat in and she's now the author of a brand new book that you can get in Amazon right now called software supply chain security, securing the end to end supply chain for software, firmware, and hardware. Um, Cassie, thank you for kicking off the show with with your awesome book, which I had the pleasure of actually reading before the show, which is one of my favorite things to do: is actually read a book and then talk to the author about the book.
1: Great, excellent, thank you so much, and I really appreciate you know folks' feedback uh, on the book as they uh, pre-order it and read it, uh, because I'm writing it for them, but also the people in their organizations that aren't cybersecurity people, like legal and procurement and all sorts of folks
0: well because software supply chain is still kind of forming right it it really is a form but before we kind of get talking about the book itself writing a book as someone who's an author in progress is a very long process it's one that challenges you as a human being right because how vulnerable how real or 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 how do you pres- how does your voice sound in in, in the book is very I think it's very challenging. It's very brave when someone writes a book. What in the world got you into the field of wanting to write a book about this very topic?
1: Well, actually it stemmed from, I'm in a community called the Purple Book Community. And that was, we really built that during COVID to write this purple book about application security and these thoughts from leaders. And they had asked me to do the process chapter and I went back to um, my friends leading that and I said, I would like to actually write about software supply chain security. And they're like, well, what's that? And I, it was pre SolarWinds, but as a developer background and you know, both from a product security and cybersecurity, I know the risks. Uh, so I explained to them what it is. I wrote the chapter and the editor that they had reviewing the chapters was an author and uh, said, well, let me introduce you to O'Reilly Media. And I did the book proposal for them. And I started the book back in... June of 2022, and it took a year and a half to write the book. It's a very long process when you're a solo author. So I was really fortunate to have a great editor, and, and there were delays in timelines that normally book authors experience. I really appreciate them being uh, so adaptive to what I was working on because I mean, this was a nighttime, weekend kind of activity, and I have you know, I had a large staff at the time, so it was a lot of uh, personal time invested into it. but there are over 200 in the book alone over 200 footnote references. So I already was very familiar with uh, with software supply chain security. but I wanted to be able to give people a lot more information to refer to if they want to learn additionally, which meant I was reading and researching thousands and thousands of pages of documents uh, to make sure that I was presenting it well and understanding certain topics.
0: Yeah, you you, to mention your footnotes, almost every chapter ends with like two pages of footnotes, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, which is great because when you look at the footnotes, you realize you're you're really you, you've gone after the frameworks, you've gone after the industry standards, you've really given credence to the arguments you make in the book around software supply chain. You've given examples, you've given that interconnection. You have a whole chapter on frameworks, right? Yeah which I found absolutely fascinating because software supply chain doesn't really have a framework per se. There's a framework kind of similar to SBOM, but that's predominantly federal. And it's being led kind of by DOD and CISA. But NIST hasn't yet come up with any sort of framework around software supply chain or something that you would consider to be an industry standard. We're, We're almost in that stage of kind of the high trust stage, I would say, yes. or the NERC-SIP type of yes. Yes. approach to it, if, if, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, the um, software supply chain security with the overlap with normal supply chain security, but then also secure development, uh, it is a bit of a hybrid. And that's what I found when working with suppliers around the world. First off, sending them all the time to U.S. government documents is you know, challenging. Uh, but when you have suppliers, uh, such as uh, I work with, with startup and medium suppliers and international suppliers, I kept referring them to these documents, but there wasn't sort of a all-encompassing reference of what I was looking for and my expectations. And that was why it was important for me to write this.
0: You know, let's talk a little bit about the importance of supply chain security, right? We're, we can name off a handful of breaches that would be a result of supply chain maybe the most recent and most memorable would be the progress move it one that impacted three thousand mm-hmm. different companies 95 million people globally you know you look at it why why do you think supply chain still remains almost i don't want to say taboo because that's not the right word but but, but it kind of is taboo in a way where no one really wants ownership of it there's kind of a a, a gap in enforcing it or where do you think that stems from, Cassie? And I know that's a loaded question.
1: No, no, it's it's a great question. From a supply chain security, just think about all the different parts. Um, so I not only have my cyber, cyber security experience, but uh, leading IT teams and dev teams. So there's not a lot of folks that really can see the entire resilience, you know, being in charge of uh DR, you know, disaster recovery and business continuity and everything that I've I've had the uh fortunate uh fortunate background to work on. So when you are looking at supply chain security, how do you know the right questions? It's very I know my one domain or this domain and another. So when you're asking and working with your suppliers and thinking about moving, you know, move it, for example, um, you're looking at the resilience for, uh, you might have, for example, categorized your suppliers to say, this is a critical business operation. But then you have to involve people that would really know how to assess that critical business operation uh, from the supplier standpoint. And that's a lot of work. I mean, at Schneider Electric, I introduced a product security assessment process where we're checking evidence. And that means that you know we're examining secure development and asking hard questions because if a supplier is providing us information and um, let's say software libraries or they're providing even something we might brand label, it's very important that we do that extreme due diligence as part of that. And but when you have, I mean Schneider Electric, we have 52,000 global suppliers, right? So that's a you can't treat everyone. As in going through that level. And so for the you know, the general population for supply chain, how are you gonna do that? Everybody's got thousands of suppliers. If they're you know ME size, even hundreds of suppliers, especially small startups. Uh-huh. What information are they gonna be able to get from Microsoft or some of the other companies? They're not gonna get that information. Um, and so it's very difficult. Uh, so the, the work that people have to do is really about, okay, I've got to assume in these cases, what happens if there's a data loss? What's my plan? What information am I providing to this supplier? So you need to take it from that approach more as um, you from a risk standpoint, what am I going to do? Is there something that I can do um, regarding that? Uh, because there will be more, and more, and we see it now every day. Move it situations, and that in the supply chain. And there's nothing, even a due diligence that you could have done to really prevent it. And these are good companies that have good, right. strong uh, security programs. Uh, but there, you know, there's uh, there's accidents where somebody gets fished, and you know, there's different areas that um, uh, the defense and depth layers were not effective enough and there were lateral movements so all of this contributes to it so you have to assume that this is going to continue and just get worse and that's why i include a specific chapter in the book about how to assess suppliers and if you're a startup, a startup that cannot get that information what can you do from a research and what do you need to do for an, a risk analysis because some companies don't even know what a risk register is like how do i prioritize this critical system that I'm dependent on. What happens if GitHub goes down for a day? I mean, what are we, you know, as a huge millions and millions of users, there's already been GitHub, uh, GitHub uh, yeah. yeah, outages, but also compromises. Um, and we're so dependent on that. But what if you are reliant on that, you know, that GitHub, and it's part of your DevSecOps product, process and then you can't do something that you need to do Uh, does anybody training are you doing simulations for these kinds of events and that's why understanding your supply chain is really important
0: yeah you bring up some really really unbelievable points there you know one of the bigger challenges for for practitioners right when you look at supply chain security product security and, and so much is kind of the cost of the business right how do you go argue for it? You, you, it's it's hard enough to staff a security, build a security team and staff it properly, right? Most of the time you're, you know, HR and finance are expecting you to find unicorns. So we need someone who understands AWS and Azure. They gotta be able to code, but they also gotta be able to document and they gotta be able to write and they've gotta be uh, uh, extroverts and not introverts, right? And you've gotta be able to present and you're like, okay, what are we looking for a unicorn? Right. That that's that's right. impossible. How do you build m- metrics? How do you build metrics that you know as a practitioner you can sell to the rest of the company to, to show that the investment here is actually worth it? What are some of the metrics you use or that you talk about in the book around software supply, well, supply chain? Yes, yeah, from so-
1: software supply chain, there's in- yes, yeah, sorry. Um, In software supply chain, there's internal metrics. So let's first take the example of your own dev team. So if you are providing something, uh, uh, whether it be SaaS solution or something else to customers, you have metrics as application security that you should be doing. This can be uh, very detailed level. Um, It can be high level. So some of the metrics is, first off, have you implemented a secure development lifecycle? So if you are just trusting that your developers and your teams are following secure development practices, um, uh, you're going to you're not going far enough. You really need to evaluate the level of that secure development knowledge. So looking at some of those metrics like have do they have the appropriate training? I, I don't even there's there is certifications like CSSLP on secure development lifecycle and secure development practices and I really encourage at least some members of the organization to have those, um, but really being able to focus on some of the secure development practices, like have they followed um, there's tools that can evaluate if they're following secure coding rules. Um, there are uh, there are metrics particularly tied to when you're doing uh, scanning for SAST and DAST and different areas. Are the vulnerabilities remediated? What you could do metrics specifically on, do and do I have the latest uh, open source library versions, um, or you know, our vulnerabilities being found in older versions? So there's the flexibility for metrics really depends on the organization, Um, but you really should be focusing on some of those application security metrics. And part of that purple book community I'm in, we have a chapter in that on application security metrics that I mentioned, but there's also other groups and other uh, mentors and, and specialists out there that can help. And identify better metrics for your organization. So, if your organization has those developers, they're used to doing burn down charts and different things like that. And you can build some of these other application security metrics into that pipeline. Now, for metrics for a CISO, so let's take a look at that. Um, you can't use um, BitSight to evaluate the development posture and software right. supply chain posture of a company. And they're really, are some services that are starting to evaluate that software supply chain security. There's ones that will um, be able to address and answer, you know, if there's, They do more OSINT, more open source intelligent, where if there's been breaches or any software supply chain where they'll categorize it to that topic. So there are services that you can look at. Um, You can look at when you're looking at your supplier base. You can evaluate if they've got certain uh, certifications, uh, such as, you know, especially in the operation uh, OT space, operational technology. We are focused quite a bit on the ISA IEC 62443, which has a 4-1 SDL standard. And so certification of products toward that is very important. That means that the teams that built it had to follow certain processes and were audited in order to receive that certification. So that's a good metric that you might want to examine depending on what you're buying. But in general, for CISOs, I think there's a long, long way ahead of us to really evaluate because you you need to have more of these software development and software supply chain standards and, and overall perspective that it's going to be impossible to tell. But, and I also want to um, mention it from the metrics is you can't judge a full organization because different products are built by different groups. So, so the Microsoft group for AI, for example, they had the data breach where they accidentally uploaded the entire training database, right? Right. I mean, so there's, again, these, um, uh, you know, things happen and there is the software supply chain, but from a metric standpoint, it's still a new topic. So I think from a CISO's background, um, you really have to, one of the things I highly suggest is if this is a critical supplier, get to know not only their CISO, but their if they've got application security and product security staff, um, so that you have that relationship if something happens and you're in an incident or crisis.
0: That, that's great. So for those joining us now, we're talking to uh, Cassie Crossley. She's the Vice President of Supply Chain Security and products secu- uh, at the global cybersecurity and product security officer schneider electric is also the author and what we're talking about on today's show is the is the book software supply chain security securing the end-to-end uh supply chain for software firmware and hardware so thank you for everyone kind of joining in here um and, and i appreciate you tuning in you can get the book at amazon on amazon sorry so go go make sure you pre-order your copy now um you don't want to miss that you know let's let's cassie let's kind of switch for a second, talk a little bit about open source, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, big question, small question, but but open source is one of those where y- you love it and you hate it simultaneously, right? We've obviously seen, you know, PyPy being abused significantly, yes. the Python repository for putting in key stealers, uh, credential stuff, or c- c- credential stealers, uh, backdoors into some stuff. We've seen that happen not only in PyPy, but across many other uh, you know, kind of open source libraries, what's the balance? How, how do you balance uh, risk yeah. versus the use of open source and supply chain, right? Because there's, I think there's always a, always a crash there between the two.
1: Yeah, well, I definitely think, and and I believe most of us that have done development realize you don't have time to code everything. and. Right. You don't have necessarily the skills on your team, let alone the resource power to do all of that. So, open source is a um, just amazing way to be able to scale and build what you need to in your product. Uh, What there are certain things, um, especially in the uh, open source world, that will have checklists to help balance and understand that risk. Uh, One of the items that I really suggest and uh you know think from an open source is uh you can do some really easy first glance checks if that open source is a new project less than six months or a year old i wouldn't take it i right. you know i mean really
0: contributors do you look at like how many people how many different people yes. contribute to the project in order to rank it
1: Yeah. And that's uh, that second. Um, There's there are services available that now will actually look at the number of contributors, but also where the contributors are located because of geopolitical issues and such. um, They're being very cautious. So um, even on your own, when you're looking at something, find out who the contributors are and check to see what other projects they've contributed to. You know, is there um, any concern? Like, let's say. Uh, you, but don't don't always be concerned about a single contributor, uh, but you need to be careful in case something happens. For example, uh, Zlib, which is an extremely popular open source, is maintained by one maintainer who um, is a very, you know, very great guy, but he also, I believe, skydives. So what happens? What's the backup plan if something happens,
0: right? If his screw doesn't open and his backup shoot fails him, right? Right, Uh, right.
1: You know, so using these, you can, of course, uh, fork branch, maintain it, Um, but there's different kinds of things that are recommended. There's, you can run it through tools. Um, I highly recommend you walk through the code. Now, if you're looking at something that's been out there for years and years, so let's let's take log4j. Everybody knows about, you know, log4shell and such. That code was used by, you know hundreds and thousands of millions of applications right and it had what well, you know from a maintainer standpoint uh didn't have a lot of maintainers but it had been tested i mean how many times has it probably been gone through a pen test because it was part of a product i mean a lot of times right. uh, so you know you 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 take that normal risk but that risk is Really, no different in some cases than you hiring a developer straight out of college who is not familiar with secure coding practices, doesn't know the OWASP top 10. You know, so there is and will always be vulnerabilities found in open source, just like there will be um, in proprietary code. And if you take the right measures before you introduce that code into your product, um, you can reduce the risk and look for that.
0: Yeah, I mean. There vulnerabilities and exploits are inevitable in software development. They I don't think there's a way to put an end to it because even if it's machine-made or human-made, there's going to be errors because there's a logic and things that kind of typically always introduce something to an environment. And I know people will say, well, with AI, you reduce it. I don't buy that AI talk. No. I and mean, we're not going to get into AI on today's uh, today's podcast, but... I just, I don't buy, I think that's hype. Let's, you know, one of the chapters I really enjoyed in the book was chapter eight. Chapter eight talks about something that I think is a conundrum for every single cybersecurity practitioner on planet earth, every single one. That's transparency and SBOM. SBOM stands for many of you who don't know, or maybe the first time you hear about it, software bill of materials. And what is software bill of materials? It's kind of like the ingredients at the back of this Celsius can you kind of know what the ingredients are and and in a lot of cases you try to replicate it you don't know the quantities and ingredients and then the same would apply you know that's not this identical thing in software right if you know all the ingredients technically you could potentially duplicate something but there's there's other items that you may or may not be able to withhold in 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 that but you know and, and what, what's 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 your use case for encouraging more transparency in S bombs? Because I did a little research on a little Slack channel full of practitioners like you and I, Cassie, people mm-hmm. in our position, and this was as divisive as zero trust was three years ago, four years ago. People said, "Ah, oh, this is BS. It can never be done." So, so what, what's your what's your case for transparency in S bombs?
1: Okay, well. I think that first off uh, the case for being able to provide this transparency is that customers want to know um, if we have been, especially in the development world uh, operating uh, in, in the stealth, in the background, uh, what, how we've done it has been very secret and how we do it and produce it. So it's not only software um, and bill of materials, but also things like our tech stacks that we utilize, uh, the provenance, who's working on it. All of this is part of that transparency. And so from a software transparency standpoint, this this SBOMs and that whole, um, let's just say movement uh, from a developer's side is is extremely scary because they're going to question you. So it's you're right, it's no different than if you are looking at uh let's say that celsius can and and or, you know a soda can it's like wh- what does that chemical really mean and what is it doing um to me what is it what is the impact on me and that's really what our customers out there want to know is you have it's i have not seen anybody say as much why did you choose this or it's just what what are you using it's not questioning our architecture decisions because honestly they don't usually have the background to question those um it's they're doing it because they need that vulnerability management um being able to decide i I, and i use this uh because one ciso in the uh utility industry said i need to know if i have to put eyes on a dial and -hmm. what he meant is at a plant you know that a utility uh, area where they've got physical dials, they need to know: is there a potential risk that I need to see if that's going to overheat or you know go out of compliance of what that is? And if that means that I have to put additional compensating controls, mitigations, or any kind of resources on this, I just want to have that level of visibility. I know you might not have the fix for it right away. But by having a software bill of materials, I'll at least know, yes, there is a log for J. Maybe I should shut that off from the outside so I can't have an RCE for the moment. And that's what's important. Does it tell them if it's affected? No. And we're a long way from what's called VEX, the Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange, where the manufacturer software publisher says, yes, I'm affected and not because there's You know, that's very complex to get you that information and it takes time to do that analysis. But at least if he or she knows, and and eventually a lot of these AI tools and and definitely the SIM monitoring tools, that there's a risk, then they can trigger the alerts in an organization to say, watch out for this one until we know better. So when there's a CISA, Kev, known exploitability, known exploited vulnerability out there, they know there's a chance that that's gonna happen. And with software bill of materials, it's gonna give them at least that heat map as uh, our product security officer for energy management uh, calls it. Um, They'll give them the heat map to say, I'm gonna look this direction and not. And if you don't have the software bill of materials, you have to look at a lot more at, you know, it's just like, I have no idea where my risk is based off of this brand new vulnerability that just came out. So when we get vulnerabilities in, let's say, Intel chips or something, you know, you've you you know you've got something in your laptop, you know, the heart bleeds, you know, of years ago, those are much more obvious. But for open source software and some of these other vulnerabilities, if you don't know the tech stack and what's behind it, you have no idea and you have to assume that it might be in there. And that's where the software bill of materials is intended to be is to say, yes, maybe you should be concerned. It doesn't give you like if you've got a batch of lettuce, the lot number on the lettuce, but it will at least tell you, hey, you have some lettuce in your fridge. I'm going to double check and see if I should be concerned about this.
0: Yeah. I kind of like the idea of an S-bomb where you go active, non-active data processing or non-data processing. Right, because at least at that point you can say, all right, we're using this library, but it's not active. It's really running in the background. It doesn't access any data. It does Mm -hmm. nothing but provide stability, right? To something that says this specific vulnerability is significant because it does process data. It does get access to specific parts of your environment or, 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 or something along those lines. And it kind of gives that, you know, I mean, but I'm one of those people who, whenever I think about vulnerabilities, I think about them in hardware terms, right? Active, non-active components on on something is it matters, right? And so I'd I'd like kind of to think of open source and and s bombs as being the same. Is this active or is it just there because it's populating something? But really, everything it's populating is cache data, just as an example, right? Right. That's, well, it could be vulnerable. It takes a lot, and it takes a specific set of expertise, which you know may or may not be as valid. Me, yes. you know, not every. You know, not everyone has the same set of skills as, as you so eloquently said. It's, uh, you know, I really enjoy Chapter 8. I think there's there's a lot to be done when it comes to transparency and S-bombs. And that kind of takes me to, to, to my next question for you, Cassie, which is, like, should there be a standard S-bomb format? And if so, what should it look like where it would give the practitioners, like you said, that heat map that you just talked about, but also kind of give us that peace of mind around exploitability. Because if you give too much, then the attackers are very quick to write an exploit for something. We know that, we know that. Today, I think Sisa said that within 20 minutes of a, of, 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 a vulnerability being disclosed, there's already you know scanning going on on the internet. There's already people trying to find exploits and, and gain access, and within 24 hours, they can essentially, you know, be able to, to 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 write an exploit for a vulnerability what, what are your thoughts on that
1: well from a
0: and and we've got a furry guy in the background for yeah, those, those for yeah, those that listening in the yeah, background for those listening well. in audio if you're if you're hearing a little slobbery guy in the back it's because there's a little furry that's like hey uh mom you haven't paid attention <laughs> yeah. like yeah. 32 minutes now even a little bit longer stop it mom it's time yeah. for attention yes <laughs>
1: Um, so from a, uh, back to, back to the, let
0: let me repeat the question so I can can get back at track. Our furry friend there, uh, uh, wanted attention. So what formats, uh, and what's the best way to kind of really adopt S bombs and, and kind of give that peace of mind.
1: Yeah. So there's two main players out there on the, let's just say the S bomb, uh, format, um, area. And, you know, it's, Honestly, I I've asked lots of people. I go to lots of different SBOM pieces, uh, events, and different um, discussions. It's about split halfway. So I think we're at the point. If people remember, you know, VHS versus Betamax, but even in newer technology, it, you've got iPhone and Android, right? You've got the two main players. I'm not sure if there ever will be a convergence into a single. Um, the, for example, the Cyclone DX community, and I know members and leaders on both uh in and so in the cyclone dx community they are able to be very quick and adaptive they're working on a crypto bomb they're working on ai bomb uh they're really able to upgrade and and be able to update that uh, format and really take in and move forward and i really um like that process and that thought, because as we go further into just besides bill of materials and go to provenance and different areas where I want to include additional information, I think that that's important. But also we have a standard and, and um, which is on the SPDX side, which is uh, originated from the Linux Foundation and now is an ISO standard. And that's very important because being able to really bring this to other uh really international kind of uh, let's follow this way. Standards are very important um, in certain areas. So I personally don't have too much of a preference. And in fact, the tools that we have can uh, generate either one. Uh, It can import either one. It can transfer between the two. Um, I think that uh, some of the challenges that uh, we're going to see in the future just in in regards to uh, SBOM uh, in general, in the interchange formats, it's actually going to be more about how we the problems that we're gonna that we're having right now is called the naming problem. It's like how do I identify that one thing? How do I make sure that that um, if I'm looking at the uh, S bond for the Apple iOS that it says iOS version this this and this and has that actual official name of Apple, you know, or you know ios what's the official name and there's no database you know for a lot of us we use the cpe database um the common product uh database where you can set up a name but there's still differences like cisco or cisco systems or things like that and there's not a standard so it's uh right. when i'm when i'm not concerned too much about the actual uh types of s standards and that i'm more concerned about. How do we get that CNA, that complete, you know, like we have at the URL level, right? There's one authority where you're registering that one item and to be clear, and that's where the naming um, problem and being able to say, this is exactly the same thing as something else. I mean, how many Linux S-bombs are we going to see? Because all of us are, you know, if we forked or branched a different thing, this is our version of embedded Linux. And this is how we're representing. And it's very difficult um, to be able to get to that. And that's where I think more of the SBOM issues that we're still trying to address are going to come to. Because you can't tell um, easily to be able to say, this SBOM was generated from this SAS tool. But this was built during the build process. So it's going to have different kinds of things. But is it the same product? I can't even easily do that
0: yet. Well, and 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 it also gets into when you're patching, you're fixing, you're upgrading, you're adding things yes. to the S-bomb, and it requires continuous monitoring, which kind of yes. takes me to the next question, right? Yeah. Whenever we onboard a supplier, whenever we bring someone on, we do these cyber assessments. And you've got a chapter that talks about cyber assessments, cyber contracts, addendums, mm-hmm. monitoring. And again, it kind of goes to one of my first questions, which is why, you know, Trying to find a metric for for a product security software supply chain side of the house and building metrics so you can build an ROI so you can actually build a team out yeah. it takes time but then monitoring and following up and whose responsibility is it is it the product owner is it the security team you know is it, who owns it um, and then how often does it get updated you know I, I am personally against Patch Tuesdays I think Patch Tuesdays is the worst idea in security. And I think when you overwhelm vulnerabilities in one day, you create the kind of traffic jam that you can't get out of. Right. And at that point you're really setting things up for disaster because you're jamming everything up, you know? And, And so, so, so I think that's one of the challenges we have is patch Tuesday, but what are some of your best practices around cyber assessments and monitoring these things and kind of, you know how do we really grasp this challenge that's called all right we've got an s-bomb great but these s-bombs update materials change things you know kind of go from here to there
1: And, and this is uh something i'm very passionate about is uh what good is it to monitor if you don't even know uh exactly what you're monitoring so let's just say um you're monitoring for uh you know let's 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 uh pretend you're monitoring just for the ios right so you've provided provided a uh, a uh, set of phones out to your your groups and there's a patch or vulnerability a severe vulnerability that comes in from apple and how are you ensuring that but how do you know what versions are even in up to date on those phones. Like if you don't control them and they're BYOD, or if you've got some, uh, if you've segmented off to a different kinds of thing, you know, environment, um, all of that information is you've got to know your entire, not only stack, you know, of what you have out there from assets, but exactly what versions are they running? Because some of them may be affected and some may not. And this is really, really difficult. I'm not going to, undersell of this this is one of the pieces that I have been pushing and discussing and I even had a meeting yesterday with an asset management vendor to say okay you know this is the information in the s-bomb that we would have yes you can um, you can uh, ingest that s-bomb manually but where are the apis because until we have a way to be able to do an exact linkage between not only the you know the asset, but also what software and not just single software. Because think about the 50 pre-installed applications on the iPhone, right? So you've got 50 S-bombs associated with that before you even install the other applications. So how are you identifying those and being able to trigger and do that? Because you're right, you can't patch everything. Um, and you've got to prioritize every single moment of every single day and until you have the monitor tools and there's some great ones out there that are getting to the point where they can look for vulnerabilities. But if they don't have, let's just pretend that you didn't know what version of iOS was installed on that work phone. Um, I had a I had a work phone that was um, out of um, out of support and it was stuck on iOS version 15. OK, it wouldn't let me update or it didn't give me any alerts that I, you know, when I tried to update to the latest versions, it didn't say your, your phone's end of life, never gave me that alert at all. And so uh, that phone was at risk. But yet there was no way from an asset management uh, standpoint to say this phone was running this version and there itself was the risk because you you know we might assume it's on the latest version this happens a lot in the ot and iot environment where you're not patched uh to the latest versions because of the complications and the difficulty with patching those so you either have to assume that you're on the original version of that and you have these thousands of vulnerabilities or you have to track that and until the tools um, are better equipped to be able to give that information or somebody manually does it because you don't want to necessarily do active monitoring and assessment of the versions with something that's a safety oriented device or in a hospital you know infusion pumps so you have to know in that room it might have this one and so we've got a long way to go and until we get that traceability all the way through you're not going to be able to make the decisions let alone be able to automate auto patching of certain devices until you have the entire knowledge of what's on there, which is not a one-to-one relationship at this point it because never, you can have something with multiple S bombs
0: It never is, yeah. Um, absolutely, the book is is fantastic, um, Cassie. Um, I want to thank you for for taking time to be on the show today. I know we're we're, we're at time, and I want to be mindful of that. We are giving away some eBooks, y'all, and so um, hit me up in my DMs. We'll pick three lucky people uh, to get uh, Cassie's ebook um, on Kindle uh, so you can really, you know, get that in. And then I'll also be doing a book review video that will drop next week of the book. So you can go check that out as well. The name of the book for all of those who are still wondering what it is if you haven't gotten it yet. Is software supply chain security securing the end-to-end supply chain for software firmware and hardware and it's really for anyone so if you're building hardware you want to get this book because it's critical if you're writing firmware just as important and if you're one of the hundreds of millions of people who's in software this is definitely the guidebook i you know i'm not going to give my review now i'll save that for my video later but it's definitely magnificent. Go to Amazon, pre-order it now. You can uh, see the link also in the show notes for everyone listening in. Um, if you're if you're driving somewhere or if you're at an airport and you're listening to the show, um, just check out the show notes. You can pre-order it with the link in the show notes there for everyone. Cassie, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great and good luck with oh, the book. It's fantastic.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you so much, James. It was such an honor and pleasure to be
0: here. Thank you so much. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, again, we're live Mondays through Thursdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, with all the latest cybersecurity news on Fridays. And we don't do these every Friday, but, but we definitely try to. We bring really exciting guests like Cassie. If you've got someone who you think should be on the show, please drop me a DM in LinkedIn or on our website, cyberhelppodcast.com, and we'll gladly examine uh, those guests coming on the show. Thank you to Cassie again. Good luck. Go get her book now. What are you waiting for? pre-order it now. Let's get it in the top uh, best-selling books on in technology on Amazon and everywhere else. Until then, have a great weekend. Have a great rest of your day for everyone tuning in and stay cyber safe. We love feedback, so make sure to connect with us on social media and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform.